So welcome to KC Essentials. Let me start with a little bit of a course overview of what we're gonna do and why this matters. I mean, we are, uh, I believe, uh, have, have such a wonderful start as a church plant. We, we, uh, I'm so excited where God has us. But as we move forward, there's some really key things we wanna make sure that we have in place so as we grow, we grow in a way that's really honoring to God, a way that's a healthy church, in a way that is going to maximize his kingdom. So I think at this key part in our church history, what we're going to look at, these things really matter. It's very, very important. And let me tell you what is our goal. So um, we launched on September 8th publicly of 2019. Um, amazing. Uh, a few months into our launch, we have a little thing called COVID that uh, uh, certainly kind of redirected some things, but has not God been really faithful? But let me make very clear what we plan to do. My goal uh, and our prayer is that January of 2022, you believe that's coming up? Can you, can you believe the numbers that we're saying? <laughs> January of 2022, my hope and prayer is that King's Chapel will reach the next chapter with church officers, with church officers in place, uh, with, with some leadership uh, developed of men and women that we've identified that we are going to install. But for us to get to that point, we got to make sure we have the essentials down place. We got to make sure we know what it is that God is calling us to do. So that is our goal. So let me give you a syllabus of what this training is going to cover. Um, we are going to have this morning a very brief introduction to Reformed theology. Uh, King's Chapel is a non-denominational church, yet it embraces Reformed theology. I'm going to give you more about that today, um, and we'll start with there. Next couple of weeks are what are called the Doctrines of Grace, and some of the biggest distinctives of Reformed theology is the sovereignty of God, that He is in control of all things. And uh, we're going to look at these, and the Doctrines of Grace, Part 1 and 2, um, are some of the key teachings of, of our theological understanding um, it's it, for some of you it'll be like I love this stuff for some of you it might be new for some of you it might be hard um, it's also known as Calvinism uh, five points of Calvinism and so uh, out of that uh, doctrines of grace sounds a whole lot better than five points of Calvinism so, um, so you're gonna get that for the next couple of weeks then we're gonna take off Mother's Day um, and then just celebrate moms um, then we're going to get to the 16th with the biblical gender design and roles. So important. We live in a time, can you believe it? Can you believe the change in your lifetime when it comes to gender roles? Can you believe the change in marriage rules and understanding? Can you believe what's happened in our society when it comes to man and womanhood, manhood, manhood and womanhood, and how those have been blurred and, and you know, that gender is fluid? Who would ever think that someone come up with gender would be fluid and you know that you can determine you know am I a he she it they we what whatever you know so we have to know at King's Chapel what it doesn't matter what I think it doesn't matter what the board thinks what does the Bible tell us about gender roles what does the Bible say and it's beautiful I'm telling you God's gender his gracious design is more beautiful than we could ever come up with it's beautiful and uh so, and, and I got to tell you as well that there's so many things um, as a preacher and a leader in today's day. I'm like, man, people, some people aren't going to like this. I mean, some people are going to say, you're, you're, you're old fashioned, you know, you're whatever. And so the reality is, uh, yes, um, I don't want to be old fashioned. I don't want to be a stick in the mud. Hi, Dolly. How are you? It's so great to see you. There's a seat right up here. Uh, 
So, um, and you also, there, there's a, uh, Dolly, we, I mean, just please hear, and we want to give you a few more things to carry. So when it comes to the, what does the Bible say? Now, let me also hit pause and say that, you know, this is, for the last few years, I've had the privilege of being a pastor of King's Chapel, which is a non-denominational church. For 26 years before that, I was a part of a denomination that had very clearly defined roles of gender. Um, and I've had to go back to the Bible, go back to my knees, go back to the wrestling with, God, what is it? I mean, now that we're not denominational, what is it that we really got to stick to with Scripture when it comes to gender roles? And, uh, you know, it's not that, hey, I got a hierarchy above me that says this is what to believe. God's word is always our authority, but what is it? And then we're going to talk about church leadership offices and roles. And, uh, you know, what is what does the Bible give to us that should be with leaders? Let me start by saying, I so believe in the plurality of leadership. Now, that's scriptural. Now, a lot of churches will say, hey, you're pastor's your boss and he's the one who's closest to God and he's the one who's going to make all the decisions you better listen to the pastor um, I had a family member a brother who grew up in a, in a, in a church that was the, the the pastor was the authority and to the point where if you ever question him you are questioning God right and, and, uh, and he took that authority he would call out even during his preaching hey pay attention you know, I'm God's man. It was like, what in the world? So God in his wisdom, uh, he realized uh, before we did that absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? That it's good to have a plurality of leadership. That uh, Moses, it's not good, his father-in-law would say, that you're bearing this burden alone. You should have others who are doing this with you. And so we should have godly men and godly women raised up to help bear the leadership of the church. And so I want to be the, 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 the pastor and the key when it comes to vision and leadership, but I want to be one of many of leaders that can help seek God's face together. So with this, we're going to look at what are the biblical offices. And, you know, I know that some of you come from different traditions, and so uh, we're not concerned about what our tradition is going to be. We are concerned <coughs> about what the Bible is going to be and say, so, and go from there. Okay. The Reformation, we start off with Reformed theology. And this is a key verse that Paul gives us out of the book of Romans that changed, of course, the history, and it changed, and it really began the Protestant Reformation. So in the beginning of Romans, it will say this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, and again, the gospel is the good news of what God has done for us, for it is the power of God. Remember last week, David Outing talked about the power of God that we would receive when the Holy Spirit came upon us, and it is the Greek word dunamis, where we get the word dynamite. So it is the power of God for salvation, this gospel, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, and here's a key thing, from faith for faith, or from faith to faith, that we find out that the good news of the gospel that reveals us this power of God and the righteousness of God we obtain by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And by the way, this comes right out of Hosea, uh, and it's quoting the Old Testament. God's got one story. So that's that's Romans 1, 16 and 17, and that would begin the, uh, the Reformation. I want to show you uh, a little bit about Reformed theology in three key areas. I want to talk to you about um, what is Reformed theology historically? How do we get here? 
what is uh, Reformed theology uh, doctrinally, and then what is Reformed theology practically? Okay, how do we live this out? Um, and again, let me hit pause and say to you, um, what's most important? Is it what the Bible teaches us, or is it Reformed theology? Well, obviously it's what the Bible teaches us, but what we believe is the Bible teaches us and leads us to the understanding of having a Reformed theological stance. Now hit pause. People will say, why do you need it? All I need is Jesus, no creed but Christ. And all I need is, I mean, why are you talking to me about theology? There's not a person alive who doesn't have some kind of theology or some, or, or some kind of mindset, worldview of how all things work. And so it's not like we're blank slates. And we're, we're leaning on those who have gone before us, examining scripture and saying, hey, what is this Reformed theology? Another pause. I didn't grow up in this tradition. I grew up in a, an, an, a non-denominational Baptist church. And I grew up by God's grace hearing from a very early age the most important truth that Jesus loves me and he died for me that I needed to accept him as my Lord and Savior. And that's about as deep in the water as we went. We never left that great truth. You never want to leave that truth. But I didn't have a robust theological understanding growing up. It wasn't until I dated some girl that I fell in love with and married that was in a different tradition, a Reformed tradition, that I started learning some of this stuff. And the cool thing is, is there was a time when Doug Meyer and I would kind of argue with each other about a Reformed theology. And I hate it because it's the only argument he ever won. All right? And so, and so, um, so he remembers me. I mean, there's very... Hi, Carla. Good to see you. Um, there's... there's a. Um, Doug will be the one who can remember me when I was back when I was. Uh, can you give that to Carl? Um, before I do this stuff, earnestly uh, this stuff. So I want to talk about Reformed theology historically. How does it fit in history? Uh, doctrinally, what are some of the doctrinal things? And then practically, how do we live this out? Okay, so let's start off um, historically. Martin Luther, nice looking man. Isn't he a handsome man? Born in. Uh, uh, Eisleben, maybe? How do you pronounce that, you think? Eisleben? Germany in 1483. I told a little bit of the story last week. I didn't, uh, when, we, when we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Uh, that Martin Luther grew up, and his, he, his goal, and his father loved it. His father said, Martin, you're going to be a lawyer. You're going to represent the family well. We're going to educate you, and you're going to be a lawyer, Martin. And so he was well on his way to becoming a lawyer. And uh, he's out on his horseback one day, and he got caught in such an incredible thunderstorm um, that he literally was knocked off his horse by a bolt of lightning. And it terrified him. And what he thought is, God is so mad at me, he's going to kill me because I'm a sinner. And, I, and, I, and he knows the things that I'm doing wrong, and God is holy. And so I'm about to die. So he cry, cries out, and he has this incredible foxhole prayer. And most foxhole prayers don't last much beyond the storm, let's be honest, right? But he says, okay, God, if you save me from this terrible storm, I will give my life to you. And he came through and he responded. He gave his life to the Lord. And back then, there was one option. I will become a priest. I will become a monk. I will become religious. And uh, there was no other church other than one, what we now call a Roman Catholic church. So he strives to become a priest. As a matter of fact, he even takes a, uh, 
uh, uh, what do you call those voyages to, to Jerusalem? He takes a, uh, uh, the Muslims do it a lot. Pilgrimage. Pilgrimage. He takes a pilgrimage uh, to, 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 to uh, Rome, and, and, uh, um, and he goes to Rome. I think I said Jerusalem. I meant to say Rome. And he sees all of the idols, and he sees all of the, he's really confused. Like, you know, can you, can you give money to have your forgiveness sin, your, your sins forgiven? And he saw all the corruption. But what he did have all of a sudden was access was to the Bible. So it was in the Latin time. He's reading it, and he's like, oh, my goodness, God is so mad at me. And he spills his first communion. Uh, his father's there, and his father's already, like, disappointed. Like, you know, my son's supposed to be a lawyer, and now he's some monk pastor and he's so shaking he's so afraid he kind of spills and again they think that that's literally the lord's blood um and he's in anguish i mean he's just crying out screaming at the devil he's like i can't find any relief god is just so ticked and then he read that romans 1 16 for i'm not ashamed of the gospel for in the gospel the power of god is revealed unto salvation for the jew first and for the gentile for in it the righteousness of god is revealed from faith to faith that we are saved by faith and boom he's like wait a minute it's not what I do, it's what God has done. And he uh, commits his, not only commits his life to God, he tried to appease God's, the wrath of God by becoming a priest and monk. It didn't. But he realizes by God's grace that the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ sets us free. That and that alone. Hit pause. It's not about becoming religious. It's not about what we do, it's what God has done for us. So Martin Luther gets this great information and he goes into Wittenberg is where he was uh, teaching, and he goes to these doors, which aren't these doors. I'm going to tell you more about this in my sermon today. Uh, he goes and he he goes to the church door, and he takes 95 theses. It's like like it's like statements, like uh, hey, these are the things that we got to really wrestle with. This is what the gospel is all about. He challenges the church, he challenges society. He takes these 95 things and he nails them on the church door. Now you're probably thinking, man, how radical? What kind of dude would do that? I and mean, who defaces the church door? by putting a big proclamation on there. By the way, that was like the, that was like the community bulletin, um, the bulletin board. So that's where they put things. You know, have, having a bake sale on Tuesday, uh, to come buy my stuff or whatever. So he throws up 95. And by the way, as well, most people couldn't read it because most people are illiterate. But it started getting out. It started getting like, wow. And so they started copying these things all over. And it, it started the Protestant Reformation because he nailed uh, these 94 to the, uh, the, the castle church in Wittenberg. The Protestant Reformation begins, by the way, that was uh, the 31st of October, 1517. So that's kind of ground zero of the Reformation historically. Then a guy named John Calvin, another kind of attorney uh, born in France in 1509, uh, and really incredibly influenced Protestantism in Europe and North America. Um, and he wrote, what's called the Institutes of Christian Religion at age 27 years old. Blows my mind of what his mind can do. Now, John Calvin, who's, again, living in that 1500 era, who is, will go to Geneva and preach in Geneva, and there's more I can tell you about John Calvin, but just absolutely amazing uh, the, the ministry that this man had, the mind that this man had, uh, uh, the heart that he had for, for the gospel, the mind for scripture, that age 27. Now, what, what intrigues me as somebody who studied this is that um, uh, he, the, when he writes, the person that he quotes more than anybody is Augustine. And Augustine lived in the 300s. He had to jump over the dark ages to try to find the truth. And so, um, but he wrote the, the Institutes of Christian Religion. Uh, and, and in Geneva, the Reformation really started to take, full, to take 
uh, form and move forward. This is in Geneva today. It's known as the Reformation Wall. If you go there, uh, William Farrell, John Calvin, Theodore Beza, and John Knox um, kind of were, were seen as those. Uh, man, when you kind of, it looks scary, don't they? I mean, I'm looking at this, I feel like I'm watching a Monty Python thing or something. But, uh, um, and then John Knox was the guy that would, would, would go to Scotland. Uh, so he was, he was the one, he's kind of the father of Presbyterian Church. Um, God bless you, Bill. Let me, can we just say thanks to Bill for setting this up? Thank you so much. I got some water for you. Cold water right there. Um, that is a reflection of Christ. That's, that sure is. Am I right? It is. It's a glowing reflection of Christ right now. Um, I love what Mary, uh, Queen of Scots, would say about John Knox. I fear John Knox's prayers more than the assembled armies of Europe. And uh, um, so this is this is in this is in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, that's a young Jeff Jakes uh, that happened to be there. So that's it. That's it historically. That's this Reformation that would start the Protestant Reformation, Protestant protesting, uh, protesting the church that they weren't telling us that you're saved by God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone according to scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Um, there's a lot of things. So what, what, what does it mean to be reformed doctrinally? It's really the, one of the most important things is that we were going to be holding to the unity and the inerrancy of scripture, um, that we believe that God's story is one story, from Genesis to Revelation, that there's a unity to this, and there is a, a, a beauty to this, and it will never lead us astray. It's infallible. And in its originals, without error. Now hit pause. We live in a time where a ton of people will say there's a God of the Old Testament. He's angry. He's a God of wrath. There's a God of New Testament. He's a nice God, and he's a God of grace. And they will even say, well, God operated this way with the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and that didn't work, so he's going to operate with the church this time, and if that's not going to work, he's going to go. And God works through different epochs of time. It's called dispensationalism. Um, and that's how many people grow up. And I bet you many of you Think about end times, like Left Behind series, by things that people taught you. Um, that became, it didn't even emerge until the 19th century. But really, Reformed theology says, no, no, there's one story of God from Genesis to Revelation. There's one way you're saved. You're saved by God's grace through faith in the Old Testament. That's what happened to Abraham. And you're saved by God's grace through faith in the New Testament. Um, and there's a unity of story. And with this... Reformed theology has a very high view of God's word, that scripture is the authority. Now, now remember what happened about coming out of the Reformation is that they would say, the church would say, the Catholic church would say, we are the authority, and we're equal with scripture. And what the Pope says is equal with scripture, that they're on the same. And listen, if you really want to be saved, you're saved through the church. And the Reformation came and said, whoa, no, 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 we're saved by Christ alone, and and God's word, there, there, there's no man who's equal with God's word. And a pope can't put himself ex cathedral, that he speaks with authority of God. This, this is our authority. Uh, and this is where we have to hold. So it's a very high view of God's word. Hit pause. How high a view do, our, do our, we live in right now with God's word? You know, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's been reduced to fables and stories. I mean, it's been reduced... And again, think of our own country that we love and we're so grateful for. And certainly there's so many Christian principles on it. But what about our man, incredibly bright man, Thomas Jefferson? What is the Jeffersonian Bible? It's the one that he made on his own, taking out miracles, taking out what he didn't believe. John, uh, Thomas Jefferson, he was absolutely brilliant. I'm blown away by him. 
Um, but at the same time, he put himself over God's word to be in the interpreter of God's word, and he comes up with his own Bible, his own rules. Why? Because he's his own God. So we see something quite differently that we believe that God has given us scripture um, and that we uh, have to listen to it. And not only that, we have a very high view of God's sovereignty. Uh, Reformed theology believes that God is in control of all things, all things everywhere. That there's not one atom outside of God's control. Hit pause. If there were one atom outside of God's control, think of R.C. Sproul, those of you who read Chosen by God, um, that one atom outside of God's control has something that God doesn't have power over. If there's anything that God doesn't have power over, God is an almighty God. We're in, we're in trouble, right? Is God sovereign over all things or no? Now we live in a fallen world and we know the brokenness of our life and the brokenness of everything around us. We say, well, God, can God be all powerful and all good and we can live with all this crap? Can that really happen? And so we start saying, well, God can't be all powerful because if he was, why does Janice have cancer? Why are we struggling the way we do if God was good? Or maybe he's not all powerful. And so some bad theology starts to emerge, like something called open theism which believes that God knows everything about now and everything about the past, but God has no clue about the future. That God is going through time with us. Why? Because they want to strip away. They want to say, well, God, he, he, he doesn't mean it that the Holocaust happened. He was so frustrated. And yes, was God angry? And was God, is his holy wrath? Yes, but God is sovereign over all things. He's in control of all things. He's God or he's not. Now, that could be comfort and joy in that. We think that there's a God who's sovereign over all things, not only in creation, but also in salvation. I'm going to talk to you about that. I'm going to start messing with you and say God is even over salvation. Is that really true? We have a very high view of God's kingdom. Jesus will come and say, by the way, seek ye first the kingdom of God. When you pray, pray that thy kingdom would come. It's a pearl of great price. You should sell everything you have to have the kingdom of God. It has a very total view of man's depravity. I'm not sure about the verbiage here. This is my verbiage. We believe that sin has affected everything about us, mind, soul, body, that we are not able to clean ourselves up. We're not able to reach toward God. We feel like that we are dead in our trespasses and sins according to Scripture. And it has a very limited view of church's authority, that what should bind your conscience is God's word, that you should submit yourself to the leadership of the church, but that I can never stand on equal ground to God's uh, holy word. And that that's our authority. And so, um, so in other words, we have a very God-centered view of all of life. Um, and that comes out of Romans 11, 36, which, which says this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. So doctrinally, that's kind of the stance there. It could be summed up through the solas. I am starting a series this morning called the Pillars of Truth. Uh, we are going to be preaching through the solas. Sola is a Latin term that means alone. And out of, out of the solas, out of the Reformation, came this theology. We are saved by God's grace alone. We are saved through faith alone. We are saved in Christ alone. We are saved according to Scripture alone, with the authority of Scripture, and we are saved to the glory of God alone, or for the glory of God alone. So that, that is taking so much of the Reformational teaching and boiling it down to 
um, something that we can put on one slide. All right. So you want to know what does it mean doctrinally? It's all about God's grace. It's all through faith. It's all in Christ. Think about all in Christ. We don't pray to saints. We don't pray to Mary. We don't pray to anybody else. We say our salvation is found in him alone. Scripture alone. It's not scripture and a certain creed or a certain church history. It's all for the glory of God alone. So to be reformed is to be embracing covenant theology that God enters into a relationship with us by his grace through covenant. Uh, the unity of scripture pointing to Jesus. And even with this covenant theology, there's implications with this. God came to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and said, I am your God. You are my people. I want you to put a sign on that reality, that relationship. I want you to circumcise your boys, eight days old, or those who come into the relationship with me. Because of covenant theology and the connection of Scripture, I believe in the baptism of infants. Um, and I believe in believer's baptism, believe in be baptized, you and your household. But that's covenant theology. It's in alignment uh, with two reformed confessions of faith, like the Westminster Standards or the Heidelberg Catechism. And we believe a, a real important thing here is the priesthood of all believers and all callings are sacred. That Alfredo um, selling air conditioner units is a representative of Christ and he has a calling just like I do. And he is an ambassador of Christ and Lily as Madam Librarian has a calling that is sacred and she is an ambassador of Christ and um, you know uh, as Katie is a teacher uh, that we have uh, that we're all our, our priesthood that that the only mediator between God and man is Jesus that you don't have to come to me to confess your sins you can go right to God you don't need me to pray for you to get in you can pray right to the Father um, but you have a role to bring and advance Christ's kingdom as well so uh, to be reformed practically uh, desiring to live well it's really to say we live for the glory of our great God and we live for the good of our neighbor um, that is practically working out our faith we want to do everything to bring God glory uh, we realize that he has called us as an ambassadors we want to do all things for the good of our neighbor and we want to be living in submission to Christ our King we have a King um, and how do Americans think of Kings we hate them we conquered a king. We don't want a king. Um, I, I love showing this. I've shown it to many of y'all, but this, my, my daughter and son-in-law uh, just yesterday moved uh, from Durham, North Carolina to the fine state of Virginia. Uh, they went to Norfolk. It was, he's about ready to start his residency to be an ophthalmologist. I come close to saying it right. And so, um, and they moved to the great state of, of Virginia. Have you ever seen the state of Virginia's flag? I love it because the state of Virginia flag has a picture of a king who's been knocked off his throne, whose crown is off his head, and it has a picture of a woman with a sword standing on him, uh, and it says in Latin, thus to all tyrants. This always to all tyrants. I mean, you want to be a king? Oh, no, our country? We're going to send our crazy women with swords after you, and, and um, they're, they're going to they're gonna come after you, you know? And... Um, um, so what does that say? We love power that's limited, don't we? We're Americans. We don't do we, we don't want we don't want to give anybody too much power. Uh, we want that ourselves. I mean, we don't want to have a king, a sovereign over us. We want to be our own kingdoms. And so, but Christ is king, Lord of lords, king of kings. 
And we are to live in submission to him. Seek first his kingdom. He is our Lord, our God, our Savior. Um, and we need to be living in submission to Christ our King and all things. And we need to be serving on mission for Christ our King, that we are his ambassadors. So to be reformed practically for the glory of our great God, for the good of our neighbor, living this way. These are all things like our motto. What's our motto? Nothing. What's the motto with you? That's so it's not even that funny. Thank you. Um, <laughs> And so that, that is kind of it for Reformed theology. Historically, beginning um, with Luther, remember, but Luther is going to just take us back to the Bible. So please don't think that this is anything new. Um, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's interesting to me that uh, I grew up in upstate New York, and in upstate New York, uh, in a place called Palmyra, there was a man named Joseph Smith, and Joseph Smith went digging in the hills and found some tablets that only he could see with some special glasses that said that God has more of a word to tell us, that he wants to tell us more. And they became the, the Latter-day Saints. They became the Mormons. Um, and the Mormons say that, hey, by the way, the Pearl of Great Price and the Book of Mormon equal with the Bible. God gave us these three things. And we're like, whoa, once Jesus speaks, there's going to be another word that's going to be spoken. And so that's absolutely crazy. Uh, we, we, uh, so the Reformation is not some new teaching like we're dug some stuff up out of the mountains of upstate New York. This was uh, uh, Martin Luther and others going back to Scripture and finding out what the truth that Scripture teaches us regarding our God and our salvation in Christ Jesus alone. And it's bringing back to the surface what Paul gave us, what Moses gave us in very clear and succinct ways. That's what it means to be reformed. We're going to talk the next two weeks is going to be the doctrines of grace. Okay. So it's going to talk more about our salvation. And so, um, and the doctrines of grace is a fancy term for the five points of Calvinism. So, but let me just start off as a precursor of this. John Calvin, the dude that lived in Geneva, and that, that John Knox would say there's probably been no greater teaching since the apostles of what he's done. John Calvin wrote volumes of stuff. He never sat down and wrote five points. What happened was a guy named Jacob Arminius, who a hundred or so years later read all of Calvin's things and said, oh, I have five points that I disagree with. Then he came up with the five points of Arminianism, which then there was a synod of Dort, which means there's a bunch of people who got together and say, who is closer to scripture? Is it Calvin's teaching or is it Jacob Arminius's teaching? And they came up and said, no, we believe that this was right. And so they came up with what's known as the five points of Calvinism. It's a re remonstrant, I think is the right way you say it. It was a response. So I hate the fact that John Calvin and all of his great writings has been reduced just to five points. But just like the solas give us a handle on the Reformation in its entirety, the doctrines of grace will help us understand salvation and the distinction of salvation. So, now, hit pause. How much of this do you need to know to be saved? Well, you can reject Reformed theology completely and say, I'm, I'm an Arminian, uh, I believe in, in something different. As long as you believe that Jesus is Lord, it, let's make it in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, now here's what you're saying, he is not just a teacher, he's the Messiah, and there was a miracle of a death on a cross and a resurrection. I believe in those things. You shall be saved. 
So when you get to heaven, the, the you're not going to be asked, okay, well, you know, were you reformed? You know, um, your place will be a little bit bigger and brighter if you were. <laughs> but um, but let me tell you why this is important is because we live in a time where truth is relative and everything's sliding all over the place. And I'm saying we got to put some tent pegs in the ground really deep. And they got to be in God's word, holding to God's truth, unapologetically. Amen. And so, be good Bereans comes out of the book of Acts. They listen to Paul and they examine scripture to see if it's true. Examine this in scripture. And if you don't fall this way, that's okay. But I want you to know without a shadow of a doubt, this is where I believe scripture teaches us. So I feel like the leadership is going to be going. And when you think about elders and officers, um, this is where I feel like you, we should really know where we're headed um, for the future. Other thoughts, comments, questions, criticisms, queries? You know how, and it's kind of more at present day. Yeah. So you know how you can be, or I should say I can be confronted, which I have past few years, even now, someone will say something like, so, you know, what does it really do for you to actually believe in any of this stuff? Or why, you know, what's, what's the point? And then you try to express yourself, but it's all always slapped down. And then I think later, is it because you didn't listen? You didn't try to listen? You didn't take it in? Because I've had to take it in, you know, just try to think, what is it that Jeff's saying? Or what is it that I've heard Jeff say in the past or another, you know, minister said in the past? And I've had to just sit and listen. Whereas... Again, this might not be making a lot of sense. No, I think I'm with you. So, you know, you have, because basically what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is people that want to say, what's the point? What's the, what's the point of yeah. all this? And I mean, it's it's spelled out right here, yeah. but trying to bring people, well, even in my own family, just bring yeah. people to say, here, it's right here. You know, let me jump in and answer that and we'll close in prayer. Sure. Okay, here, here it is. When Jesus often taught, he would say an interesting phrase. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Why would he say that? Because he knew the parable of the seed. He said, listen, the kingdom of heaven, it's going to be like it's going to be like uh, this seed that some's going to fall upon hard soil and the birds are going to come and get it. Some's going to fall along rocky soil. It's going to spring up. It's not going to last. Some's going to fall among the thorns. It's going to, it's going to be choked out. Some's going to fall among good soil and it's going to bear fruit. So... The fact that some people will listen and some don't, it doesn't mean because your argument is not good enough. It doesn't even mean the timing isn't right. I believe that sin is so devastating and, and that, that they don't have the ability to hear until God gives them the ability to hear. This is foolishness to the world. Okay, and scripture tells us that. I mean, in Colossians, 1 Corinthians uh, 1, this is stupid. The world's going to think you're an idiot. Dolly, you're placing your hope on some guy that lived so many long years ago. They nailed him to a cross and he supposedly got out of the dead. That's your hope in life? Yes, it is. This life and the life to come. And uh, it's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. But it's the foolishness of the world. And, you know, so that, that, that's, that's where they are. So it's not going to be about our argument. We, we, we need to have a good argument. We need to know what we believe. But we got to realize that God's the one who's going to soften their hearts. So, all right? Oh, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for Martin Luther. And he was a knucklehead like us. And he had some warts and some pimples. And even as a believer, there were some things that were like, ooh, come on, Martin. Uh, but God, what a man of God. And, and how faithful and true he was to your scripture. But God, our hope isn't in Martin Luther. Our hope isn't in John Calvin. These are, these are sinners. Our hope is in Jesus. And, and he is 
your son and our, our Lord. And we love these men because they help point us to that reality. And they point us back to the scriptures and, and what they really teach. And so, God, that's what we want to do. We don't want to hold up any particular theological platform. We don't want to hold up any heroes other than Jesus. But those platforms we want to make sure are pointing to Christ, pointing to your word, supported and true. Um, Lord, may King's Chapel be a place that would unapology, unapologetically just proclaims the good news of the gospel. That God, you grow us deep um, in, in God's word and that we would shine brightly for Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.